Welcome to Encounter. We want nothing more than to help you find and follow Jesus. If you're a college student in Central Illinois, join us Monday nights, ISU's campus. We'd love to see you there. No, stay standing for a second. Stay with me. Yeah, curveball. Hey, um, if you haven't been around, if tonight's your first night, we have been walking through this series on the Lord's Prayer. And, but as we get toward the end of the spring semester, I really like to take a week and forecast what we're doing in the fall, give you a teaser of, of where God's taken us, and that's tonight. We're going to be talking about that tonight. But I love the fact that this prayer has, has provided a consistent voice, a consistent prayer for us all semester. So I still want to start that way tonight. Let's say this together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours now and forever. Amen. All right, now you can grab a seat. All right, I want to talk tonight a little bit about story. Uh, You have one, in case you weren't aware. Some of you feel like you don't. You feel like yours might not be interesting. Oftentimes, we project our story onto other people. But can I tell you guys, after doing campus ministry for a while, I'm pretty cautious about that anymore. Because some of you, you know, some of you come from really solid families, and some of you really do not. Some of you are walking your parents through really difficult stuff right now. Some of you come from really secure financial families, and others are not. Some of you, I know, I mean, I know firsthand because I've talked with you. Some of you are helping your parents financially right now. Some of you, um, I, I talked to a girl a couple of years ago who I would have thought came from the most normal suburban family um, to only to find out that she'd lived a significant part of her childhood homeless with her mom. Uh, you don't know the story and the struggle of what's sitting around you. Very different. You don't know my shoes. I don't know your shoes. But what's cool is God does. He shepherds us through all of those different things. Our, um, our theme for the fall is going to be turning point. The idea that, that God constantly is setting these choices out in front of us, these different paths that we get to, to walk. I snagged just a piece of Robert Frost's famous poem um, where he says, Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler. Long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. I grabbed that little piece in this picture because it represents this idea to me that constantly we come across these places in our path where something branches off this way or something branches off that way. You didn't expect it. You didn't understand. You may not understand it. You may not have wanted it, but it's there. And so this question of, okay, well, what do I do with that now? What do I do with these branches that seem to come off my path? And then, you know, he finishes that poem by saying, I chose the path less traveled, and that has made all the difference. So, let's talk story a little bit tonight. I'm actually going to talk with you a little bit about mine, because as I've thought this last week about my turning points, like these important moments in my life, 
Um, some of them I knew was coming. You know, the, if, if you're a senior, whether it's high school or whether it's college, there, there's some decisions that you have in front of you that are obvious turning points. But as I thought back through mine, those aren't all of them. A lot of mine happened in ways that I didn't really understand were happening at the time. So let me just give you a little bit of mine. I grew up um, it, as a uh, I, way out in the country. I, I tell some people sometimes that I grew up in the woods, and that is not far from the truth. Okay? I grew up in the country, and our, our family property backed up to a farmer's woods. We had a good relationship with him. I spent as much time, I mean, I knew every hill, every creek, most of the animals okay, that, that lived in those spaces. That's the way that I grew up. My parents both ran their own businesses. We didn't have a lot of money when I was uh, real little, and then their, their businesses started to get more successful as I, as I grew up. But, but, uh, but I had a very autonomous childhood. I inherited some of my dad's work ethic. Um, and so I have a lot of autonomy that's built into me. My mom wanted us to be, my dad wasn't a follower of Jesus. My mom wanted us to be connected to the church. She thought that was healthy for us, so she connected us with the church. And so I grew up around church influence most of my life. And it was a decent church, you guys. And I remember when I was about 13 years old, um, coming to the place where I knew that I needed Jesus' help. I knew that I needed his rescue, and I remember around 13, 14, committing my life to Jesus, but I had no idea what that meant. And so, fast forward to the end of my, I don't know, junior, senior year of high school, and I'll tell you this, faith just didn't matter to me much. Um, I mattered to me much, you know? Uh, I started dating. That was a purely selfish endeavor. I like the affection. I like the attention. That's why when it was, again, very super mature, super healthy, me-focused. Um, and so that's kind of what, I don't know, I, didn't, I wouldn't have been able to say that to you as a senior in high school, but as I projected my life out, it was more about me and less about Jesus probably at that point. And there was a dude who entered my life in that in that season whose name was Todd. I have a picture of a couple of them here. Todd is the one on the left. He would hate that I'm showing you that picture, but, which is why I chose it, because he's not here. So Todd was a college student at the time, and kind of out of nowhere, he was a guy I knew from church. Um, he reached out to me and just wanted to hang out. He's like, and, and, and so we developed a friendship, and um, I, was, I was learning guitar, at the time, I was a little ahead of where he was, so I would teach him some guitar. He was going to Moody Bible College at the time, so he would say, hey, I'm reading this book for a class. You should read it too. And I would read a book, and then we'd go over to his, his parents' house, and we'd shoot pool or play shuffleboard or do whatever, and we'd just talk about what was going on in his world and what was going on in my world. And it, you guys, years later, I read books on discipleship, and I realized that that's what Todd was doing to me, Okay. But I had no idea that's what it was at the time. We, there, were no, there were no words for it. He was just my friend. He was, there was an intentional friendship where Todd saw that I was hungry, that I was very self-consumed, and he started investing in me as a high school guy. And most of his investment in my life looked like this. It was, hey, Ben, why don't you come with me when I do this? So he, he would do Bible studies. Why don't you come with me and do this? Okay, it's a little outside of my comfort zone, but I was like, I can try that. Why, why don't, I'm visiting, uh, he, he did prison ministry. Why don't you come with me and do some of that? Like, okay, uh, we can try that. And so, um, and hugely influential. 
He started doing missions work in Europe. I spent a summer there because he said, why don't you come with me and do this? We'll do English camps while we share the gospel. Okay, why don't you try leading worship? As I mean, again, as I'm just beginning to learn my instrument, he's like, why don't you? He kept stretching me and pushing me a little bit, but I'll tell you why I was hungry. I was hungry because I saw something in Todd's life that was purposeful. He understood why he was put on this planet. And I was like, man, I want to be around this guy more. I want to learn from him. And I began to understand why my faith actually mattered. But it, I mean, yes, I had received God's forgiveness, but my faith in my life actually intersected. And I'd never seen that before. At least I'd never, maybe my mind just wasn't open to it before. But that was the very first time where his investment in me, I was like, I'm beginning to understand what the Christian life actually is. Todd rooted me, you guys. And his main method of discipleship was just to be like, hey, why don't you come with me? Come with me to the stuff I'm already doing. And we just developed this natural friendship that continues to this day. He doesn't live anywhere near here anymore, but if he's back in town, why don't we grab coffee? And he's doing the same thing he's always been in my life, okay? Well, then, toward the, I'll, I'll just tell you this part, too. As the guy who was involved in a bunch of, you know, these, these self-consumed dating relationships, one of the very first convictions that God gave me as a follower of Jesus was that, where he was like, this is kind of gross. He put his finger on that in my heart. And I realized I had some growing up to do. And so I agreed, and in my senior year of high school, I was like, okay, God, you win. I will not date someone who does not at least have the potential of being a spouse. Now, I thought that was a pretty easy agreement, okay? Um, it, it ended up not being an easy agreement. I ended up being single for like two, two and a half years. And um, I'm not saying I was ultra mature during that time. I'm saying I needed to mature during that time. The next woman I would have a date with would be my wife. I mean, not immediately, but it took a, it took a while after that, okay? Yeah. <laughs> but in that, God knew. I mean, I look back at that, you guys, and that was a small conviction. I mean, I, I remember being at a space where God was like, this is a really me-focused spot in your life. It didn't feel like a turning point in the moment. It actually kind of sucked. But God put his finger on that and said, something in you needs to change. I was like, okay, let's lean into that. Huge turning point for my maturity. Huge. I made the decision to transfer when I was, uh, went from junior college to, to Eastern Illinois University, um, studying English lit. I wanted to be a high school teacher, so I went there. That's where I met the dude on the right. His name is Roger. Roger was the campus minister there, had a huge influence on me. This dude loved the Bible, and he knew it backwards and forwards and could read it in, his, in its original language, and he taught me what it meant to respect the Word, to teach it well, to think critically about it, to truly apply my mind toward the Bible and go deep, go deep. And I was a sponge when I hit EIU. Now, I still had no desire to do campus ministry. Minist I had never thought about doing ministry of any kind, all right? I just, I, I led worship, and I did some discipleship and other stuff. Um, after I, I graduated, um, Joe and I got married shortly thereafter. He called me back up and said, hey, would you consider doing campus ministry? And I was like, no, I don't. but I'll pray about it. 
And it took a while for Joe and I, again, to process through that with the Lord and pray about it. And, and now, I mean, I've been doing campus ministry for 25 years. I look back at each one of those little things, these little turning points, these little paths that diverged in the road, little convictions. Sometimes they were big moments. Sometimes they were tiny moments. Sometimes they just didn't even, I, I don't know if on that given day, I would have even told you that something had happened or was going to happen. It just happened. You don't necessarily understand all these turning points in real time. You see them much more clearly in the rearview mirror. You have that kind of a story. Do you know each other's? I mean, like, even from a friendship perspective, if a super interesting question to be like, hey, what are five, five big turning points in your life? I bet you'd be shocked by one or two of them, even with your close friends. It's a great question to ask. But what are they for you? They matter. I want to lean into those tonight because I think they're important. And there's so many more I could talk about with my own life. I mean, struggles with kids and with finances and with marriage and with money. It's like, all, you name it, there have been turning points all the way along the path. But God's super faithful in those. And friends, each of us too... Uh, <laughs> like, the way that we handle these turning points is very different. Some of you get to that, that fork in the road. You see a new path that's there, and you're like, let's go! And you're 400 yards down that path before you've even asked a follow-up question of, like, is this a good path? Is this, like, destruction? Where, where have I led myself on? Some of you, you see that fork in the road, and it is paralyzing for you. Paralyzing, you're like, I have to understand every intricacy of this or I will not take another step. It, we call that paralysis by analysis, all right? You are going to die in that spot because you cannot choose. Some of you, it's not an issue of you being paralyzed by it, it's just denial. I don't want to choose. Put my head in the sand, let's just pretend, or I'll just go on with the path that I'm on and pretend that there was never an option to begin with. We all face these things in really, really different ways. And some of these are thrust on you. Some of you had a turning point as a kid where your parents got a divorce. That one, you didn't choose that. That one was thrust on you. But some of them you choose. Some of them you get to that point, you have an internal conviction, or you have an idea, and you think, huh, that could be really beautiful. Or, I mean, it's like some of you have changed your majors based on those turning points where you begin to see the road ahead of you, and you're like, that's this isn't the path that I thought it was, and I want a different path. And then you have to convince your parents that it's a great path, this new path that you're going to take, right? But these turning points are incredibly important for you. I hope that you're paying attention to them. It's one of the reasons why this fall, I'm going to spend the whole fall teaching through them. Different people all over Scripture with all different, we're going to look at Moses. We're going to look at Jonah. We're going to look at the Old Testament people of God. We're going to look at Jesus. We're going to look at Peter. All these different people who in these crucial moments had to make decisions that they could not possibly have understood would, would have paths that keep branching and keep branching and keep branching. You guys, life ain't easy, but I look at my life right now. I look at my life right now with six kids that I adore. I adore who God is, is growing them into. I look at you and the way that, that he's bending and moving this ministry and changing us together. I truly believe with my whole heart that this culture is poised for revival. I do. And I think you're going to be a part of it. And I think, man, God, how did I get here? It seems like a million tiny turns that I could not have predicted. 
But each one of them, his Holy Spirit's just helping us move on. You, you, the beautiful thing is, friends, even when you make the wrong decision, even when you make a bad decision, even when you make a sinful decision, God's still faithful. He still redeems and reuses and bends that stuff toward his glory. You cannot get it wrong when you submit yourself to him and say, God, help me. Help me find the path that seems wisest. Help me find a path that you care about deeply. So, the scripture I want to grab tonight to talk about this comes out of Acts 2, and it seemed like an appropriate scripture because, you may or may not know this, but, but when Jesus died, so we celebrated that last weekend, his death and his resurrection. He died on a Friday, was, was buried, put in the tomb, and then he was resurrected on Sunday. Well, the Jewish people had these feasts that were lined up with it, and it just so happened, not coincidentally, that Jesus dies on Passover Okay? And he's, he's resurrected as a part of the Feast of First Fruits. The Jewish people would have known these, these feasts very well. There is a delay then, friends, of 49 days. And then on the 50th day, they had the Feast of Pentecost. Every year, same thing. So penta meaning 50. So Pentecost is this feast. And so we know for a fact, as a matter of fact, I, I wrote down the verse here. It's in Luke when Jesus appears to his followers in Luke 24, 49, this is him resurrected. He tells them, behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So Jesus tells his followers, I'm resurrected, but don't go anywhere. Stay in Jerusalem. My power is coming. He doesn't tell them how long. He doesn't tell them that they're waiting for Pentecost. They just wait. So they hang out in the city And then in Acts 2, it happens. There's this crazy miracle because there's people from all different nations that are there for for, uh, the the Feast of Pentecost. And God performs this miracle where they're able to speak in all these different languages and all of the nationalities there can understand it in their own tongue. It's this crazy miracle. And people are confused. They don't understand exactly what's happening. And Peter in that moment, who just 50 days later, 50 days later, he was denying even knowing Jesus. Remember that little part of the story? He was the one who was like cursing and swearing, saying, I, have, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know who Jesus is. Fast forward seven weeks and a day, and Peter stands up, and he gives a three-minute sermon. And after his three-minute sermon, 3,000 people are baptized. That's a better sermon than I've ever preached in my life, all right? That's a good response for a three-minute sermon. Three minutes, 3,000 people baptized right in that moment. And let me just give you some little pieces of that sermon, because it's brutal. He stands up to talk to them. He quotes the prophet Joel, talking about how God's Spirit will be poured out on all flesh. And then he says this to them, men of Israel, this is in the middle of his three-minute sermon, Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Now, I'm going to pause right there for a second because I want you to hear what Peter's saying. There were people, I mean, it's like if this is the crowd that he's preaching to, there were people there that had been healed by Jesus. It was, I mean, Jesus was alive 54 days before that. There were people in the crowd who were part of the feeding of the 5,000 who ate the bread and the fish that Jesus multiplied. There were people there who watched him heal blind men. 
There were people who watched him help paralyzed people who were paralyzed from birth walk. So he's saying to them, you saw this with your own eyes. You can attest to it. And then he says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. He's talking about the Roman government. You handed him over to the Romans to be murdered. Peter's being a little direct. You watched Jesus do miracles, and he was the Messiah, and you murdered him. And so he continues. I mean, like, talk about a turning point in this. He goes on to quote David from Psalm 16, and then at the end of Peter's three-minute sermon, we have this. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, meaning Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And now when they heard this, talking about the people who were there, they were cut to the heart. Cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? I tossed a picture of our baptism wall back up at the campus house because maybe you've wondered or maybe you've not noticed that little tiny sign that sits in the middle of all your pictures that says, what shall we do? That's where it comes from. Because Peter's response is this. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. That's you, me. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. And so those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 souls. Now, I need you to understand why this stung them. Because the Jewish people had been praying for and waiting and celebrating a Messiah. They didn't, they didn't expect him to look quite like Jesus. And so they missed it. They missed it. And so Peter is able to walk up in front of them and say, you and your parents and your grandparents and your ancestors have been waiting and longing and praying for the person you just murdered. And their minds are opened. And they're like, oh my goodness, what, what should we do? What can we do with this, Peter? What are we supposed to do? And he says, repent. That word means turn around, walk a different direction, change your mind, change your posture, and be baptized, which represents your death, burial, and resurrection. Talk about a turning point. So let me give you just a, a taste of a few things that I notice about these people. Number one, they showed up. They're there, all right? They don't have to be there. They could be somewhere else. You guys know how easy it is to not show up, right? Super easy. They didn't have Netflix, but they had other options. They did not have to be standing there listening to Peter. They chose to be there. Woody Allen, I love this quote. He said, 80% of success in life is just showing up. I agree, okay? Number one, they were there. Number two, they actively considered his words. They were curious and they were inquisitive. They didn't just show up. They actually listened to the sermon that Peter gave them. They opened their minds. They were listening to what he had to say. Number three, their hearts were soft. 
Verse 37, did you hear it? It says they were cut to the heart. I mean, the words that Peter was, sh- was sharing, they-, they made their way inside of them. That previous one, they considered his words. That's, that's a mental piece. Oh, yes, I'm understanding and I'm engaged with you right now. But there's a difference to opening your heart. Oh, man, maybe there's something in me that needs to change as a result of that. Which takes us to the next one. They were willing to consider change. What shall we do is the question that comes out. And the last one, they acted on that conviction. They acted on that conviction. 3,000 people were baptized in that moment from their head to their heart to their hands and their feet, you guys. They showed up. They were curious and inquisitive, soft hearts, open minds, willing to change, able to act in that moment. Man, there's some convicting stuff on this list. And it's right on the surface in this passage. But I'm going to tell you tonight, if you want to take advantage of turning points that God gives you in your life, this list should be important to you. Self-analyze a little bit. So what happens? What happens as a result of this? Well, there's so many different turning points in the Bible. That's why I'm excited about preaching through this. I mean, Moses sees the burning bush and he's inquisitive enough to actually go and figure out what's happening there. Samuel hears the whisper of God, and he's diligent enough to actually respond, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Isaiah is swept into a vision, and he's aware enough of what's happening for God to actually send him on mission. I mean, Saul, he has a plan who will become the apostle Paul. And God knocks him off the animal he's riding on onto the ground, and his whole future is rewritten. But I'm challenged by that even as I preach it to you because there's a piece of that that's like, man, how many burning bushes have I walked by today? Just today that God's set out for me, and I've just had my earbuds in and plowed right through and been like, ah, burning bush, no big deal. Too preoccupied with the stuff that I got to do, taxes that have to be done, bills that have to be paid, meals that have to be made, groceries that have to be bought, deadlines that have to be met, to not notice the burning bushes that God has set aside all along the way. Paths that split that he's put out in front of me, and I just blow right by him without even noticing. What happens when you notice? Well, in our passage, this is what happens when you notice, because this is what follows that. It says this, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. What happened? Revival. Revival breaks out. This is inner transformation. People are giving their money and their time away, not because some government said that they have to, not even because the church said that they had to. They were doing it because God had transformed them from the inside out, and it was changing who they were. Suddenly, they're generous people. 
living this out with each other. What an invitation. You guys, this is what flows out all of that other stuff, them showing up and them listening and engaging their minds and them having a soft heart and being open to change and acting on their convictions. When we live out that stuff, revival happens. It's it's not an equation. That's not what I mean. I'm not saying you're forcing God's hand by doing that. What I'm saying is when we open ourselves and say, God, do whatever you want, he's like, oh, are you sure? Whatever I want? And then he's like, angels, buckle up. Watch what we're doing. And this is the result. This is the result that you and I blow by every day when we don't pay attention. An amazing quote from Bob Goff. There is only one invitation it would kill me to refuse, yet I'm tempted to turn it down all the time. I get the invitation every morning when I wake up to actually live a life of complete engagement, a life of whimsy, a life where love does. It doesn't come in an envelope. It's ushered in by a sunrise, sound of a bird, the smell of coffee drifting lazily from the kitchen. It's the invitation to actually live, to fully participate in this amazing life for one more day. Nobody turns down an invitation to the White House but I've seen plenty of people turn down an invitation to fully live. Turning down this invitation comes in lots of flavors. It looks like numbing yourself or distracting yourself or seeing something really beautiful as normal. It can also look like refusing to forgive or not being grateful or getting wrapped around the axle with fear or envy. I think every day God sends us an invitation to live, and sometimes we forget to show up or get head faked into thinking we haven't really been invited. But you see, we have been invited every day, all over again. Friends, you don't know how important those moments are. Like I said in the beginning, when I look back over my story, I didn't know how important that little tiny conviction of that my dating life needed to change, how much that would change me. Some of you this year have confessed and, and dove headlong into um, trying to find healing for an addiction, a pornography addiction that you've carried for most of your life. And you think that that's just you trying to take care of a sin problem right now. <laughs> and God is like, no, 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 no. I'm transforming you for your future marriage. I'm transforming you for your future influence on your kids. He's doing a work right now that you cannot see that he's preparing you for. It's worth leaning into. It's worth taking that path. You don't fully understand, and I don't fully understand what he's doing in those mundane moments, but he's doing it. I don't have the, multi- the power to multiply that, but he does. And you offer your little loaves and fishes, and he does something different with them. And that's the invitation. That's the turning point invitation that you get. The sum is greater than all the parts, which I don't fully understand. So when I say that, here's what I mean. I mean that your small group isn't just a small group, and your classes aren't just classes, and your friendships aren't just friendships, and your relationships aren't just relationships, and your apartment isn't just an apartment, and this ministry is not just a ministry. They are all conduits for what God wants to do in a much larger scope, and our eyes are only partially open to that. If 50 of you and me, 
catch that vision for this summer and next year, you guys, our campus will not be the same. I can't even imagine what it would be if it was 300 of us, (laughs) like, to grab that vision in a very different way. Turning points, turning points. There's nothing mundane in your life that exists that God cannot use and multiply the way that he wants to. And we live in a world, truly, that preaches at you that you are just like this object that life keeps throwing stuff at. You're victimized. And God says, no, not when you're empowered by me, not when you're empowered by the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. That's not who you are. You're someone who has the ability to be transformed and give that transformation to others. That's the turning point that he's inviting you on. I want to do this. I'm running out of time, so I'm going to do this really quickly. Um, But going back through those verses, verses 42 through 47 in chapter 2, uh, grace leads is what we talked through the entire beginning of this semester. But I just w- I want you to hear some of the language that exists in this passage. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's God's truth. They're anchoring themselves in God's truth. And the fellowship, <laughs> that's community. To the breaking of bread, that's community. And to prayer, that's God's voice. Awe came upon every soul. That's a sense of voice and worship. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. That's mission and that's community. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. That's authentic community, my friends. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. That's when true community and mission overlap. And day by day, attending the temple together, that's gathering in community and voice, and breaking bread in their homes, that's authentic community. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, voice, and having favor with all the people, mission. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. What does it mean that they were devoting themselves? You might say, this sounds great, Ben, all this turning point language, but what am I actually supposed to do well, we've already talked about it. <laughs> like, well, a life that is anchored in God's grace, chase his truth, chase his voice, chase authentic community, and watch mission come out of you everywhere in that. These are the things that we do as we respond. That's what God has asked us to lean into. We devote ourselves to those things. So, what lesson can we learn from the early church, from Acts 2, when it comes to turning points? Here's what we can learn. Keep showing up. Be curious and be inquisitive. Soften your heart. Be willing to change. And act on your convictions. I want to give you a moment to stare at this list. Because I want to ask you, where are you stuck? If this is the posture of a heart that's open to the turning points that God has, where might you be stuck? Heavenly Father, thank you for your care and your concern for every soul in this room. 
through every problem that they've encountered, every turning point that's been thrust upon them, through the ones they've chosen themselves. God, you, you haven't gone anywhere. Even when you felt distant, I trust your promise that your presence is constant. And I know I'm, I'm speaking for the fall as if this group will be the same. It will not. I know some will be often turning points elsewhere, but God, we trust you for all of it. Trust you in what you need to do with this campus and trust the way that you will use them as missionaries where they're headed. But tonight, Jesus, I specifically ask that you would give us an awareness, Holy Spirit, of what you want to do in our lives. Help us to submit all of it to you and watch it be multiplied and transformed and be, built, be blown away and be humbled and just give you praise for every ounce that comes out of it, Jesus. The semester isn't over yet, so Christ, for those who are itching for new life, I pray that you'd meet them where they're at tonight. I pray that you'd help them find it, Christ. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. Find out more about Encounter and ways to get involved at isuencounter.org. Thank you.